Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, page 813 in the church Bibles. In just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 8 to the end of the chapter. And I think we're actually going to be able to finish chapter 13 this morning. If you're, if you're new, my name is Joe Franzone. It's a pleasure to see you here this morning. Um, we have been working through 1 Corinthians since September of last year. So the reason why we're here this morning in these verses is because this is where we should be. So we just want to let you know that. I'm going to read the Bible and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. Okay, verse 8. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen. May God grant us understanding of his word this morning. Let's bow together, please, as we seek the help we we do need desperately. Father... With our Bibles open before us, we, we thank you sincerely for these verses. And we ask God that you, by your Spirit, will teach us from them. So that your written word will be our rule, the cross our only boast, and your greater glory our supreme concern. As you help us, Father, please help us to love the way your word has said to For Christ's sake, we ask these things this morning. Amen. Love is forever. Love, verse 8, never fails. Love is perpetual. It's eternal. At no time then, the love which Paul is describing here, when it's applied, will it collapse? Will it fall? Will it disappoint, wither, or decay? All of which is the sense of the Greek word that's used here in verse 8 for fail. Now, we've been saying all along that the love which Paul speaks of here is not emotional love, it's not sexual love, it's not familial love. Rather, this is volitional love. This is an act of a will, right? So if you like, this love is a made-up mind to love God's way, not based at all on the merit of those who give this love to. In other words, especially in the church, others in the church, do not have to earn our love to receive this love. And this is why this love is Christian. This is why this love is so forgiving. This is why this love, when given or received, is so incredible, so attractive, so encouraging, and it is so divine. Divine as this love is part of the very character of God Almighty. And of course, we see this love most, most clearly at the cross. In fact, whenever the New Testament speaks of God's love, it is always tied, always tied to the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus was loving us by dying for us, even while, Romans 5, even while we were sinning against him. 
Now, I hope you understand this. When I have a horrible thought, when I do a horrible deed, when I say a horrible thing, the love of Christ covers the Christian in such a way that our standing with God is unchanged, the promises of God still certain, the care of God guaranteed, and our relationship with God still soundly secure. That is agape love. This is how, then, we ought to love each other. So clearly, there's no, that we, no way, then, that we can deserve this love. Certainly, there's no way that we can earn this love. And absolutely, there is no way, now listen carefully, there's no way that we can produce or practice this love except for the grace of God in Jesus. Hence, this gift of love is a gift of love. It comes to every Christian. It comes to us like all that we have by way of God's grace in Jesus. Someone once said, what we know grace teaches us, what we have grace gives us, what we are not grace makes us. So the gift of love, and the Corinthian church needed to learn this, this gift of love, like every spiritual gift, gift is not given simply for our own spiritual advancement. You've you got to get this down. Spiritual gifts are not given simply for our own spiritual advancement. They're given to serve God, and they're given to build up His church. See, that's basic Christianity. That's why it's so basic that people come here week by week to worship Jesus Christ. The gifts are not given to advance the self, which is why I cannot stand the commercialization of Christianity. We've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. If we come into Christianity only to increase our knowledge, only to advance ourself, you know, only to fix our problems, only to gain, you know, a competitive or financial advantage because God's on our side. If I come into Christianity only to make my family more successful, then we are way, way off. Knowledge, chapter 8, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, puffs up. Love builds up. Now listen carefully, because if you think about this, the building up of the church is directly tied to the building up your family. And, and you can't have one, not correctly, you can't have one without the other. We also took note at the beginning of our studies in this chapter that 1 Corinthians 13 suffers from, on the one hand, over-familiarity, and on the other hand, of kind of a cluelessness, right? Over-familiarity, because we see these verses everywhere, right? There are plates and dishes and napkins and pictures, So we're tempted that because we see them all the time, we really, really know them. Cluelessness in the way that we apply them. So, for example, uh, these verses are only for marriages. Uh, These verses are only for couples who don't like each other very much anymore. That's not the truth. So I hope you are no doubt why chapter 13 was placed here. I can tell you that it wasn't placed here because Paul said, wow, 1 Corinthians 12 is really tough. And 1 Corinthians 14 is going to be really tough. So you know what? Let's just soften up things a bit and we'll give them 13. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul is writing to them in this chapter by way of contrast to point out what the church of Corinth was really like in the exercise of their gifts and in their behavior in the church. So if your Bible's open, their problem was that they were, verse 4, they were lacking in patience. They were lacking in kindness. The slightest thing, verse 5, the slightest thing set them off in the church. They were an ill-mannered group. And they always had themselves first in their mind all the time. So in describing these features of love, Paul is actually hitting on the church and he's saying these are all the bad vices you have. So the church that prided themselves in being so advanced spiritually 
actually needed Paul to give them the ABCs of spirituality all over again. Namely, verse 13, faith and hope and love. So, so the church in Corinth, which was a very lively church, it was a dynamic church, and it was a church full of gifts, but it was also a church full of show-offs and a church full of babies. And that's the kind of thing which does not build up the church. It actually is the kind of thing that tears down the church. So Paul has to tell them, love, verses 4 to 7, love never fails. This, this quality is unconquerable. Right? Verse 7, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. To the end, Christian love. Unconquerable characteristics. We never go wrong. Never go wrong when we love this way. So, so again, this love is not a human quality. Rather, this love is a divine evidence of increasing spiritual maturity. Right? And that is at the very heart of this paragraph. So, so what Paul is making plain to them and for us, listen carefully, the real evidence of God being at work in a Christian's life, which is the same thing of the real evidence of God being at work in a church's life, is loving increasingly the way described here in verses 4 to 7. That's genuine Christian maturity. And of course, pride would get in the way of that. Apathy would get in the way of that. To think that I'm too old to change or I'm too young to change, that would be a foolish thing to say. Almost as foolish as the line of thinking that the Corinthian church was on, which said, would you just look at us? I mean, we have all the gifts functioning here, especially the gift of tongues. We have some prosperous people here. We have visions. We have supernatural occurrences. I mean, people are seeing visions of heaven here all the time. Surely God's at work. And Paul says, no. No. Chapter 4, he tells them, already you think you've arrived. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Already you've become kings. You're you're masters of your own destiny. But if you read on chapter 4, he tells them, listen carefully. The way of the cross is the way of Christian maturity. The way of the cross, which is the way of love, is difficult and it's hard. But the gospel will not advance unless we love this way. And that is the proof. Not your visions and your signs and your prophecies and all that stuff. No, no. Love, Christian love, is the proof that God is at work in you. Now, that might not be very popular, but it is very Christian. It's very biblical. We have three points. Pretty straightforward. Number one, the gifts of the Spirit are not signs of final perfection. Of course, they thought it was. They thought because these gifts, in particular, uh, certain gifts were going on in the church that perfection had come to them. No, Paul says, when perfection comes, verse 10, these gifts which you equate with perfection will be gone. See, these things you're using as your benchmark of the sum total of your spirituality are actually going to disappear. Tongues disappear. Prophecy disappear. Uh, The ability to understand mysteries. It's all going to disappear. These gifts for now, okay, but they're still imperfect. Again, chapter 13, verse 8. Second part there. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there are knowledge, they'll pass away. Right? It's all going. Verse 9. Okay? Because now we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the new heaven and the new earth, all the perfect 
all, excuse me, all the imperfect will, will disappear. Now that makes all the sense of the wor- in the world if you really think through it. Let me just give you an example. The claims that are made now in the gifts of healing, which some of which was taking place in the Corinthian church, they're at best imperfect. So when we recognize that God may sovereignly choose to heal, intervening in a certain time in a certain person's life, at best that healing is still imperfect. Even in the sense of Jesus' healing when he walked this earth, he healed them, but they would later on eventually die. So whatever we may call healing may prove to be remission, but never in time be proved to be a permanent transformation. Think of it this way. The person who God in his tender mercy heals of a horrible disease will still eventually die. Because the very healing itself of God is still limited by the context it came in, namely, in a fallen world, in a fallen body. I hope you understand that. So it's only when the perfect comes, only when the perfect comes, there will be no pain, no tears, no sighing, no dying. However, in our present context, in the now, every one of us in this room will be touched by those marks. And any church who says, no, we can give you perfection now, we can make it all go away, is at best small-minded and at worst lying to itself and lying to others. So, so for those who believe that the Christian should uh, always be super great and always be super fit and always be super healthy and some of us wealthy and if we're not, then, then there's something is wrong with our faith are not only a royal pain in the neck, but what they're suggesting is, is that perfection can be now on earth when the Bible clearly teaches here that perfection hasn't come. Perfect is not in the now of earth, but rather in the then of heaven. And anyone who would teach us by book or by sermon that if we encounter sickness or if we face pain or if we have failure or if we have family problems or if we have marital problems or if we are just flat out inadequate for the task, whatever that task is, anyone who comes to us and says, well, you must be living in sin then. You must not be tapping into God's fullness. And and we need to buy what they're selling. And we need to get on their team Loved ones, I can tell you with all the love of my heart, you run away from them. You run away from them. What these individuals are doing is what the Corinthian church was doing by saying you can have it all now. The now of earth can be just like the then of heaven. You can live the fullness of your promised land life now. You don't have to wait. Really. Really. Let me just say this. When you try to live now like then then you can't live now in light of then. Because if you live now in light of then, there will be trouble. There will be trouble because Jesus said there'd be trouble. It's the way of the cross. It's the way now for the Christian. That's our first point. The gifts of the Spirit fully functioning are not signs of final perfection. Second point, okay? Heaven, while in heaven, we're going to experience perfection. We understand that, but not while on earth. Now, second point, it's about maturity. A maturity which is not perfection. Now, you're going to have to think with me again. When the Bible speaks of heaven and the maturity of his true children, they're two different things. Heaven is heaven, it's perfect, it's final. 
and spiritual maturity is now and it's ongoing to our very end if we are in Christ. So the fact that there were people in the Corinthian church saying that heaven can be now displayed in the spiritual gifts was pointing to the fact that they had a problem with their spiritual maturity and they had a very, very childish view of the world. In other words, they were babies in their understanding. And that speaks to their selfish ways. I mean, not to be unkind, but at the core of a child, a child is selfish. I mean, that is at its core. They don't understand how things should be. And so Paul is saying to them, you need to grow up in your thinking, right? That's the first word there. Your, your, your personal opinions fleshing out to action, that's baby thinking. And then you're speaking. It's called prattle. It's, your talk is inconsequential. It means nothing for the kingdom. And in your reasoning, it's a kind of logic where you're at the very center of the universe. It's the kind of logic where you put yourself first. In other words, that's baby thinking and baby talking and baby reasoning. I want it all now. Why can't it be at all? Why can't everything be now? I, I deserve it now. I want life to be easy and I want life to have no responsibility. Now. Here's one of my favorite songs. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Ho, ho, ho. And a couple of tra-la-las. That's how we laugh the day away in the merry old land of Oz. Listen to this verse. We get up at 12 and go to work at 1. Take an hour for lunch and then at 2 we're done. Jolly good fun. Right? Now you're with me. That is how some... Well, let me say it like this. That's how much of spirituality comes to us now. Right? Anyone who comes to us and says, hey, heaven can be now. Perfection can be now. You can have your best life now. And all your problems will go away. You can have it all now. Is either lying or has an incredibly low view of what having it all means. This is incredible immaturity. Incredible selfishness. This is incredible childishness. It's a flat-out denial to do what Jesus said to do while we're on this earth. If you doubt that, listen to what Paul said to the church in Corinth way back in chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as worldly, mere infants, mere babies in Christ. What is worldliness? What is babiness? Their whole life, their whole thinking was all about them and all about now. Irresponsibility describes in pseudo-spiritual activity. When you get to chapter 14, Paul's going to tell them plainly in verse 20, brothers, stop thinking like children. In other words, stop thinking that now in the exercise of your gifts and now in your spiritual experiences and the euphoria that comes along with that stuff, stop thinking that now is perfection. And their problem in that church was they were elevating a certain gift. It was the gift of tongues, a sign of not maturity, but Paul was saying actually it's a sign of your immaturity. So quit the baby talk. Because now, verse 12, you see that there? Now we see only as in a mirror. Corinthian mirrors were famous. They were world-renowned. But, but at best, they were just heavily polished metal. And when you looked at yourself, you didn't really see yourself. You saw something, but it wasn't really you. Not like mirrors as we understand today. So that's why Paul says later on, later on, we're going to see face-to-face. But this is now. Now we don't see clearly. Now we stumble. 
Now we turn our backs on God. Now we fall. Now we are not at our best. Now our friends call us and they say, I am terminal. Now our friends call us and they say, I'm sad and I'm in trouble and I'm afraid. Will you please come over and help me? Now, what are you supposed to do with that as a Christian? Are we supposed to tell them, well, you foolish person, don't you realize that you can name it and claim it, you can have it and grab it, and all your problems will go away? Is that what you're supposed to say? That is the counsel of despair, which comes from an empty head and a closed Bible. That is immaturity. This world is broken. We are broken. I am broken. Now, now, we'll never be perfect. You can't have heaven on earth. You cannot have then, now. You can have a pretend heaven, right? A life of irresponsibility to the cause of Jesus Christ. But you can't have real heaven. Listen to C.S. Lewis. If you read history, you'll find Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. The Christian who by and large ceases to think of the other world becomes ineffective in this world. I hope you had a great Easter Sunday. I mean, I prayed to that end. I hope you had a fantastic Easter Sunday. But Monday still comes after Sunday, right? We still got to do the Monday stuff. I still had to go home on Monday and clean the house and wash clothes and fold clothes. And I had to do it doubly good because Monday was my wife's birthday. So she came home to a spotless place. So we live now in anticipation of the better then. That's what Paul's saying. Ours is a partial age. So much can go wrong. We can't live now like then. And we can't tell people that then can be now. It can't be. Even with all the fullness of all the spiritual gifts in operation. So we should never give that impression. In fact, Paul will even undermine a bit this idea that uh, knowledge is power. Because he says, look at verse 12b. Now I know in part. So even as an apostle, he doesn't know everything. Right? So many of us read books and we listen to sermons and we go to conferences and we attend the best that we can. But again, all our best estimations are still imperfect. Knowledge may be power, but knowledge is not full power, not on earth. It is only in the then of heaven that we can fully know. So that's why as Christians we have to live honest lives before each other. And if we try to come across as, as now is like heaven, then we just confuse people. We can dishearten people. You know, we should be ourselves. We should be well-mannered. But we shouldn't put on a show. Especially a pretend show. By the way, the last line in verse 12 is a good thing to know, isn't it? Even as I'm fully known, who fully knows us? God fully knows us. Right now, you and I are fully known by God. So some, some of us may be here this morning and we, we're just downright lonely. We are in trouble. We have problems that are huge. We have circumstances that are just turning our stomach in knots. We, we may think that we're failing in the very things that we, we, we care about the most. I'm sorry. See that? <laughs> well, here's a good thing. We are fully known by God. So one of the angels in heaven turns to the Father and says, God, do you, do you know John Smith? And God says, do I know John Smith? I know everything about John Smith. How about Mary Jones? I can tell you everything about Mary Jones, God says. I, I can tell you that because she's mine. 
That's my girl. She belongs to me. I know her. Now, none of us here know God like that. None of us here. None of us know everything about God. The whole quest for Paul in spiritual maturity is that he might know Christ. So he recognizes that even at his best, his knowing will still be imperfect. But one day, he says, verse 12, we're going to fully know Jesus even as we are known. One day we'll fully know, not today. So he knows that one day every question that we ever had, every uncertainty that we, we've ever experienced, all the whys and the what happens of life, they're going to be answered in a moment when we look into the face of Jesus Christ. So you see, now our life calls for patience. Now it calls for faith and hope and love. It calls for biblical realism. And it does not call for someone with a big ego and a big smile saying you can have it all now. 1 John 3, 2. One day we will see him. And on that day, we'll be like him. You find the same thing in chapter 8. Paul stresses this. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. You see, don't think with me. That's why it's probably bad for us to go to our Bible in a kind of like search and destroy mission. So we have a problem. We want to fix it. We want to know. So we search for the solution in our Bibles to try and destroy the problem. Going to the Bible thinking this is what we need to know instead of going to the Bible rightly, letting God teach us what he wants us to know through his living word, telling us this is what you must know. There's a huge difference. A huge difference. The perfect will never come now. But be encouraged. God knows you. He knows your name. He knows where you sleep. He knows where you're going. He knows where you bend. He knew that I was going to drop that paper. And he knew that I was going to feel bad for about two minutes after I dropped the paper. And that to me is amazing. That's amazing. But the Corinthians were stuck on the fact that they were blowing their trumpet and, you know, and tapping their tambourines using their spiritual gifts as toys, and they had lost sight of the essential thing. Well, what Paul should have told them, he should have said, you know what, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, church. So, so in the church, there might have been a smarty pan, a Mr. Bible man, right? Had all the answers, knew everything, all the gifts functioning. But Paul would say, that does not prove evidence that God is at work in you. That's what he's saying. So, so what if you know your Bible? It doesn't necessarily mean you know God. So what if you have visions and utterances? It doesn't mean you know God. So what if you say that you saw God or you're speaking for God? So what? Don't hang your hat on all that stuff. There's only one real characteristic. There's only one true vital sign. And the sign, verses 4 to 7, is love. That kind of love. That's the sign of God being at work. And that takes us then to our final point, our third and final point, the triad here of faith, hope, and love. And that is the essence of genuine, genuine Christian experience. So number one, the gifts of the Spirit fully functioning are not signs of final perfection. Two, now it's about maturity, but it's about a maturity which will not be perfection. That's heaven. Number three, faith, hope, and love are the essence of genuine Christian experience. And I want you to listen carefully, please. In chapter 3, 13 and verse 13, Paul is not describing here um, natural qualities. 
So we all know people that are naturally uh, full of faith. They're, they're naturally people who are hopeful. They're warm and they're friendly. We all know people like that. So he's not talking about that because the little triad of faith, hope, and love, as we said, it's found everywhere, right? Pictures and plates and all that kind of thing, Hallmark cards. And so people see it all the time. They think they know what it means. And people like faith, hope, and love. We understand that. But the fact is, is that there are non-Christian people who are naturally positive, naturally hopeful, and kind of warm and friendly as anyone you've ever met. But Paul in verse 13 is describing distinctive certain evidences of God at work in an individual's life. Indeed, verse 13 answers the question, what is the mark? What are the true marks of a true Christian? So this is, this is shorthand for Paul. This little triad is code for Paul. This is what it means to be a Christian. Let me give you one example. Colossians 1.4. Paul's writing to the church and he says, We've heard, we thank God for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people and the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven. There it is. Faith, hope, and love. So you see, now we're at the very essence of what the Christian experience is. This is the high point of Christian maturity. Now we know the benchmarks of what will mark a true Christian, right? Now we know this is the thing that will mark a genuine spirit-filled church, regardless of what gifts are functioning. Faith, love, hope. Now I want you to listen. Faith is more than saying, I believe in God. Faith is a converted Christian saying, my trust is not in anything but Jesus Christ. I don't trust my works. I don't trust my experience. I don't trust the exercise of my gifts. My faith is resting in Jesus Christ alone. I relate to God only through Jesus Christ, right? We can wake up every morning knowing that we are accepted by God, not by our personal performance, but by the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ. I need no other sacrifice. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That is faith. Love. Love is not a warm feeling in your tummy. Love is not getting together and just feeling warm and fluffy with people. Love, this love, is an I ain't quitting you love for your fellow Christian regardless. Regardless. This is verses 4 to 7. Take this little test. Set before yourself right now in your mind the hardest person in this church to love. Put them before your mind right now. Why is everybody looking at me? I could be. I could be the hardest person in the church to love. Okay, so you have them there? So Christian's love is like, I'm going to keep on loving you. Like, it's the only thing I'm going to do to borrow a line from the song. Yeah, I'm going to be imperfect in my love for you at times, but I'm going to be still plowing away. So before you became a Christian, you'd get mad and you stay mad. Before you became a Christian, you wouldn't forgive. You could just you'd play the whole thing in your mind over and over again. But now as a Christian, you keep no record of wrong. Your copybook is clean. Now who did that? Did you do that? Or did Jesus do that? Jesus did that by His Spirit when He came into you and He saved you. So this is genuine, normal Christian experience. A faith that's in Jesus Christ alone. A love for those who love Jesus Christ in the church. And by the way, if you think about it, that's what worship is about, right? I mean, no person in their right mind would want to come here on a Sunday morning to worship Jesus Christ. But when the Spirit of God lights up a person's life, when the Bible becomes a living book, when Jesus becomes a person's passion, when they know how much Jesus did for them, then it's a very easy thing 
an easy thing for them to come and worship Jesus Christ. So you don't need to sign a card and make a claim to say, I'm a Christian. You need to have faith in Christ and love for those who love Jesus. Okay, and what of hope? Well, this hope is the assurance of the life in the world to come. And unless the Holy Spirit is at work in a person's life, they will be a void of, of, of the assurance of heaven. Right? So someone is terminal, someone is sick. There's no way they're going to be able to go to their bed at night saying, if I die in bed tonight, it'll be fine. Heaven is my home. There's no way they can say that unless the Spirit of God is at work in their life. So you see, there's the test. That's the real test. Right? If my faith is in Christ alone, and if God has given you an increasing love for those who love Jesus in the church, and if your hope is in heaven, and it's complete, and it's ever-growing, no matter how, how shaky you might be, no matter how weak and sinful you might be, you have in your life the evidence of genuine Christian faith. Right? These marks mean that God is at work in you. And they're more valuable and they're more important than all the spiritual gifts combined. Because if you don't have them, if you do not have faith in Christ, if you don't have hope in heaven, if you don't have love for God's people, then you are not a Christian. You're not a Christian. You can have visions. You can have utterances. You can have trances. Who cares? If you don't have faith in Christ, if you don't have a sure hope in heaven, if you don't have an ever-growing love for God's people, then you are not a Christian. Faith, hope, and love. Is that our life? Right? Not complaining. Because it's not going to be perfect. Faith, hope, and love. Paul's final little phrase there, and the greatest of these is love. Okay, why is the greatest of these love? Well, because God doesn't have to have faith, right? Who, who would he have faith in? God doesn't need hope. Who would he have hope in? But he does have love. God does love. He is love. And God's love is the greatest thing. And when his love penetrates us, then we will grow, and then we will mature, and then we will become more and more like him. So love is forever. Love is better than anything. I mean, you might love the spectacular, right? Explosions and worship and lights and sound and all that kind of stuff. But anyone can do that if you think about it. But when the world sees God's love in us, then the world will come in here. And some will stay in here. Why? Because gifts, especially the gift of love, it builds up the church. Anywhere? Yeah, anywhere. Anywhere. Think it out. Thanks for your attention. Let's bow together and pray as we sing a hymn in preparation for communion this morning. Well, Father, we give glory to your name. We thank you that your love is clear, that you have a great passion for your people. We thank you, Father, that you, you in your measure of what is true spiritual experience, faith, hope, and love, they're lovely, tender things. They're not hard. They're not crazy. They're not showy. They are things which cause us to demote ourselves in the care and in the advancement of others. So would you please, Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, give us here at West Cohasset Chapel an increasing 
love, which is more and more like the kind of love that we learned of here in 1 Corinthians 13. Thank you, Father, for hearing our cry. You're the only one that can do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.